0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, October 12th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Does the regulatory state fuel populism? At the Cato Institute Conference, New Challenges to the Free Economy, Cato adjunct scholar Brian Kaplan did his level best to answer the question literally and comes to the conclusion that populism fuels the regulatory state. It is thrilling to be back here at Cato in person. It is wonderful to see all of you here. I haven't been here in years. Uh, The question before us is, does the the regulatory state fuel populism? Whenever someone asks me a question, I like to listen and answer the question literally. This is one of my eccentricities. All right, Uh, so just to start, um, what is populism? Uh, Surprisingly, we've already had two other definitions of populism. I have a different one that I like very much. Uh, In psychology, there's a concept that I think all economists need to know much better. It is called social desirability bias. It is a fancy term for something we all know in real life, namely, when the truth is ugly, people lie. Am I fat? Oh, of course not. You look great. Um, uh, Furthermore, sometimes the lies become so ubiquitous that people start believing absurd things because they just never hear anything else. I think of populism as really the political version of social desirability bias. It's when you evaluate policies purely on how they sound superficially. You don't want ugly truths. Ugly truths like, that sounds good, but it fails a cost-benefit test. Uh, The kinds of things that I think of as really exemplifying... Social desirability bias, you know, if it saves one life, if it saves one life, then we should do it, right? Never mind if it inconveniences hundreds of millions of people, right? That is the kind of thing that works in politics, saying, look, we're doing this to save lives. How many lives? And how hard is this going to be? Those are the kinds of questions you generally do not want to ask in politics, and as far as I know, this is true in every known country. Even dictatorships try to go and sell themselves with a lot of feel-good nonsense, where if you really think about it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Another example that I really like of social desirability bias at work is universal programs. We should take care of every American. Well, who's taking care of every American if we're taking care of every American? There's something weird about that. I was talking to Denmark a couple weeks ago and I was saying, I know you guys think your democracy works better, but in this way you're the worst in the world. You are are one of the countries where you spend a whole lot of the budget helping everyone, including most people who don't actually need the help. If you were a philanthropist, you wouldn't go and give a dollar to every human on Earth. You would say, where are the war orphans? Let's target the money to where it will actually do a lot of good. And yet, that kind of talk saying, well, do we really want to waste money on everyone? Why don't we just focus on the specific, narrowly tailored problems? And that does not sound very good in politics. And so we do see so much politics is really about saying things that sound good and then spending money in ways that sound good or regulating people in ways that sound good, even though the actual payoff is very small. Or as we're discovering, they don't even do a cost-benefit analysis, which I do have to say, is a very elite thing to do, by the way. I've never heard a random person just say, you know what we need more of in government? Cost-benefit analysis. That sounds very much like something where elites are not getting their way, actually. Um, so, we're thinking about there. Uh, now, uh, that is what I think of as populism. It's this politics of social desirability bias. It's thinking that, what, that we should just do what sounds good, avoid what sounds bad, pretend as if there are no ugly truths in the world, even though the world's full of ugly truths. Um, now, on the actual question, does the regulatory state fuel with populism? What I think is clear is that populism fuels regulation and fuels fuels the regulatory state. If it saves one life, that sounds good, and it leads to a pile of regulation where we spend massive amounts of money trying to get very small gains. We all saw this during COVID where just the smallest hypothetical possible gain is led to make almost everyone in an area miserable or to say, look, we can't do something fun because there's a one in a million chance this could lead to someone going to a hospital. Like, well, maybe that person who's so worried should just stay home. Again, that doesn't sound very good, but it's the same thing you would say if someone says, I can't go to the concert. I might die if I drive there. You know, if you're that worried, you probably you just shouldn't go, rather than saying we can't have a concert because someone might die on the way to the concert. Uh, so I would say that it's very clear that the reverse version of this is correct, that populism does fuel the regulatory state, but that wasn't the question we were asked. The question we were asked is, does the regulatory state fuel populism? On this, I think the honest answer is probably not. Why not? We have a lot of evidence that policy is heavily based upon perceptions of voters. But when we go and try to see what causes those perceptions of voters, one of the main things that does not seem to cause voter perceptions is reality. Uh, There is a fantastic paper by... See, by, by Gimpleson by and Treisman on public perceptions of inequality around the world. What they discover is that there is barely any connection between perceived inequality in a country and actual inequality in the country. There are people in very, are there countries where inequality is, in fact, very low, where you ask people there and they think that it's high. There are countries where inequality is actually very high, and people think that it's relatively low. Uh, Even more impressively, they find that no correlation at all between changes in inequality in the real world and changes in perceived inequality. Uh, This means, for example, that every free market person who has said, let's have some more redistribution, because then people won't be so worried about inequality, and then we can get more support for free markets. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You are under the illusion that actually changing inequality will change perceived inequality, and the evidence says otherwise. Uh, the same goes for almost any other political variable that people care about. You know, Are we being inundated by foreign products? You know, the actual relationship between changes in foreign trade and changes in perceptions of the amount of foreign trade, probably next to nothing. And we can go down the list. Um, now, I am, of course... Like most people, emotionally I like the idea that everything I don't like goes together, but that's just not true. Again, that's another ugly truth. So while, since I don't like the regulatory state in general, I don't like populism in general, I like the idea that each causes the other in a horrible, despicable tangle of causation... Um, causality police could get involved there too, I guess. Uh, but I think you know the reality is that it is not objective facts that cause people to support any political policies. You know what does matter. I mean, of course, the really easy one is political perceptions are very much based on conformity. Other people think something, so I think something. Probably a whole lot of beliefs about COVID are based on that. Certainly, public beliefs about COVID couldn't be based upon scientific research, because most people don't read scientific research, couldn't understand it if they did read it. So it's more along the lines of, well, what are the people that I know saying? What is the popular view among my tribe? You know, Of course, media also plausibly plays a role there, although we've got to worry about reverse causation. People are going to tend to watch the media that says what they want to hear. So keep that in mind as well. Uh, The kind of regulatory state that I am most focused on in my work right now is regulation of housing. Uh, This is one where, on the one hand, I'm very much in agreement with almost every other economist who studies it, saying that housing regulation is terrible and is doing immense harm. But then even economists will often assume, well, the problem here is objective self-interest. It's that homeowners are the median voter, and they know that it benefits them to have this regulation because it keeps prices up. There's, again, so much evidence against this. Uh, Tenants are very nimby, too. The people who clearly lose from housing regulation because they rent and they don't own homes, you can generally see that they have a lot of support for housing regulation, too. So what's going on? It just doesn't sound good to normal people to say, let fat cats build some stuff, and then you will be able to get a cheaper house. Sounds much better to say, let's have an affordable housing program where government then goes and builds it with its nonprofit hands and then allocates it based to people on need. That is the kind of thing that sounds better. Uh, so um, this is one where again, I would li- I kind of like the idea that uh, housing regulation is causing a bunch of other problems politically. But I think really what's going on is social desirability bias. The good arguments for housing are ones that don't have a lot of emotional appeal. And so I think that's the the general story, the what's going on. Sorry. Brian Kaplan is a professor of economics at George Mason University. He's also a Cato Institute adjunct scholar. He spoke at the Cato Conference New Challenges to the Free Economy held last week. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.